Hi everyone, and welcome to Wise Brothers Voices. I'm Sabrine Dao. And I'm Florence Ferrando. And we are your hosts for this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Wise Brussels is dedicated to advance the leadership and professional development of women in the field of international peace, security, and defense. And as part of that effort, we're going to have some enlightening conversations on the COVID-19 impact on women in conflict-affected areas. For this episode, we decided to invite three gender experts working for Search for Common Ground, an international peacebuilding organization based in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. They are currently operating in more than 30 countries across the world. Our guests will share their experiences and vision from the Middle East, North of Africa and Horn of Africa regions. What has changed and what will change as a consequence of the pandemic and mostly what are the emerging opportunities for women which can be linked to the global health situation. 2020 is for all of us across the world a year of deep up of This reality of the pandemic is not the same for everyone and it's inequally affecting people. Women are probably among the first to face immense life-threatening situation. We are pleased to share with you the experience of Search for Common Ground, one of the NGO in the front line, witnessing and acting to support women during this obscuring time. With us, Mateda Fleming, Judy Kimano, and Rim Eljabi. Welcome, ladies, and thank you for accepting this invitation. Starting this discussion, we will give the floor to Matilda. Thank you for your time, Matilda. Can you present yourself and tell us about Search? Sure. So my name is Matilda Fleming. I'm a senior manager for European affairs at Search. Well, I'd like to call myself an in-house feminist. I uh, co-lead uh, the monthly women's circle that we organize here at Search. And I recently also led the working group that is currently advising our leadership on a new gender strategy. So that's quite exciting. And before joining Search, I worked for, for the European Women's Lobby on uh, women's political participation. Search for Common Ground is one of the largest peacebuilding NGOs in the world. We have about 700 staff globally, of which more than 90% work in the countries they're from, meaning that we have a deep understanding of the places where we work and of, and of the conflicts where we work in. We work in about 35 countries, or 10 geographies of conflict, as we call it. And we have a wide portfolio, ranging from lots of youth work to work with religious leaders, military forces, extractive companies to develop collaborative responses to conflict. And wherever we work, we try to look at what works. Even in war-torn places like Syria or Yemen, we seek for opportunities for, for collaborative responses at community level. So seeing those sort of sparks of hope. Can you tell us about your gender-related work on the field? We work to change norms, to change institutions and to change markets. And what that means for our gender focused work, we do a lot of work around gender norms in media or, or working using media as a tool to change gender norms, let me say. So lots of uh, media production of uh, so soap operas, for instance, on radio or on TV with a message that in a culturally appropriate way challenges existing gender norms. And we work to change institutions, for instance, through supporting women's organizations in Southeast Asia to strengthen the role of women politicians, um, to lobby for quotas for women in politics, and to, once women are elected, also making sure that they have the, the networks that they need and the, the skills that they need. Building on our experience working with pandemics in fragile settings, uh, most notably work on Ebola, both in Eastern DRC and in West Africa, 
we thought we wanted to put that knowledge and experience to work in this new setting of a pandemic. So we wrote a, a series of policy papers that are all available on our website. And the first one of, of those papers was a paper on, on gender. We thought it was crucial that the COVID response would understand the gender dynamics of a pandemic. And we consulted about 30 teams across the world, our colleagues, uh, on their perspectives and needs related to the, the COVID-19 crisis. And what we heard from them could be categorized into, into three different buckets. The first one was around how gender impacts COVID-19 prevention and protection. The second one is around secondary impacts of COVID-19 in the home. And the third one around gendering government and security responses. So looking at prevention and protection, what we strongly assume is that most of the people left out of public information campaigns related to COVID-19 will be women. This is because of lower levels of literacy. It's because of a gendered division of household labor and because of less access to broadcast media. When it comes to secondary impacts in the home, Lots has been said about gender-based violence and violence against women following the, the pandemic. But what our colleagues drew our attention to was also the structural gender inequalities within families that will harm women and girls. So, for instance, women recovering from COVID-19 might face challenges by their husbands to return to their homes. This is something that we've seen in, in the Ebola context. And when it comes to state relationships and security responses, we, we have a strong assumption that in countries where women already are excluded from public life and from political decision making, that limitations to their participation might increase further following the pandemic. My colleagues Judy and Reem will speak much more to what this looks like in practice and importantly, what can be done about it. So as a way to ensure strong public communications around the COVID-19 crisis in conflict-affected countries, with the support of the EU's instrument contributing to stability and peace, we're currently running a project that we're calling Allies Battling Corona, ABC, that uh, aims to produce highly contextualized communication campaigns that reaches hard to reach communities uh, affected by COVID. So that's uh, a concrete thing that we're doing. Thank you very much, Matilda. And we are looking forward to hearing about the outcomes of your current project related to gender and COVID. Thanks a lot for having me and uh, looking forward to what Judy and Reem has to say. Thank you very much, Matilda. Before listening to your colleague Judy and Reem, let's remind ourselves that the United Nations released in April 2020 an important report on the COVID-19 impact on women, leading UN General Secretary Antonio Guterres to highlight consequences faced by women which will be generated by this pandemic. Nearly 60% of women around the world work in the informal economy earning less, saving less, and at greater risk of falling into poverty. As markets fall and businesses close, millions of women's jobs have disappeared. At the same time, as they are losing paid employment, women's unpaid care work has increased exponentially as a result of school closures and the increased needs of older people. These currents are combining as never before to defeat women's rights and deny women's opportunities. If Mr. Guterres highlights dramatic consequences on women's daily life, he also emphasizes why women should be considered as crucial stakeholders to build up recovering perspective. COVID-19 is not only challenging global health systems, but testing our common humanity. Gender equality and women's rights are essential 
to getting through this pandemic together, to recovering faster, and to building a better future for everyone. Our next guest is Judy Kimamo. She will share with us the COVID-19 impact on women in the Horn of Africa. Thank you, Judy, for being here, and please tell us about you. My name is Judy Kimamo. I am the director, Swahili Coast. Our work is located within uh, the Horn of Africa. Currently, our programs are running in Tanzania and Kenya. The conflict ecosystem in the Horn of Africa, especially as a result of the breakdown in governance and government of Somali, over the last two, three decades has affected how the neighboring nations, peace and security environment uh, looks like. And we've increasingly, because of the porousness of the borders and the fragility of being very close to Somalia, has affected internal dynamics. We are really happy to have you to share your perspective since you're working on the ground. So could you share with us what are the consequences you notice in Kenya following the measure to counter the pandemic? So what we have noticed over time Some of the numbers that are coming through as a result of that sudden closure and sudden measures that were taken and communities not being able to adjust as quickly is that so far we have noticed that many young women who were safe in school, who because of the monitoring and close supervision that happens, many of them now have fallen back into the hands of a cultural vice that is known as female genital mutilation. Our project sites, communities in those areas are reporting increased uh, female genital mutilation. We had a report of 16 girls in the coastal region in Tana River who underwent female genital mutilation. And that was 16 girls from one village. So you can imagine if that is extrapolated, the number of girls now who have been exposed to a vice that uh, the government and the communities had tried to catch and, and halt. That means that many, many girls in different parts of the country are now at risk of some of these cultural negative practices. And the other numbers that are coming up is that the National Gender-Based Violence Helpline reported a steady increase of GBV cases. The number of people who had called in March were 115. And in June, we had 1,108 cases reported in June. According to the Ministry of Health, There was also a spike in uh, GBV cases reported between January and July as compared to last year, January to July. We also have learned of increases on teen pregnancies. The data is yet to be made available, comprehensive data. But the data that is coming through the media tells us that uh, the trend that many girls who, who closed school when the measures were put in place, many of them will not go back to school because they will be transitioning into motherhood, or many will already have become mothers, and therefore they, they will need extra support to take them back to school. It's quite impressive to see the different concrete impacts on women and girls, as you mentioned, domestic numbers related to teen pregnancies, as well as gender-based violence. How did you adapt your ongoing programs? What we did in our programs, we understand that uh, many local networks and many local organizations, some of them that are just forming and starting up, are not able to attract funding for their initiatives. So what we have done over time is that we have ensured that all our programs have got a pool of funds that are accessible to, for local community interventions. And these local community interventions Uh, interventions that are responding to the conflict or crisis at that particular time. So we were able to provide 
several initiatives. They give, give small grants to upcoming networks. Some, some are not even formal, some are not even registered, for them to have an opportunity to do some interventions at local level. Uh, one of the interventions that is happening here in Mombasa, uh, led by, by a women's organization, took place in Old Town, a place where we had one of the strictest uh, lockdowns where people were not allowed to leave their homes. Uh, and there was quite a bit of acrimony between the community and the government. And that group uh, was able to conduct conversations with young people, conduct conversations, uh, dialogues with young women. And, and some of the young women in that initiative are women who had gone through a GBV uh, and, and, and therefore were, were providing a kind of care and support for each other and reaching out to others within their uh, locality that is called Old Town in Mombasa. And with time, they've been able to form a space for women where women have confidently sought for psychosocial support, healthcare services, come back to do their small businesses, and, and now are looking outwards for the opportunities that are coming up. So that, that kind of funding that we provided uh, has helped several initiatives. We can talk about uh, 23 initiatives uh, that communities have been able to handle uh, to, to address uh, the COVID crisis. Uh, another intervention was able to, to bring the magistrates into the media. The director of public prosecution was also on media over several mornings. And the focus was to address gender-based violence, to provide communities with an opportunity to bring their issues to the court and to the justice system as early on as possible. And one of the interventions by the magistrate, she's, called, she's, she's in Malindi, she actually opened her courts to any emergency that required her to address uh, defilement or rape or gender-based violence on young women and girls and men in the society, because also gender-based violence on men was also uh, on the rise. We provided interventions, and I think that's an important element, that we are able to provide resources that respond to the crisis on a real-time basis. I see. What does 2020 represent for you and your region in terms of gender issues? In spite of the pandemic consequences, do you see opportunities to improve the society? This year, 2020, marks the 25th year of, of the Beijing uh, Women's Conference. The conference did not take place. Was supposed to take place early in the year. But that means that people, nations, states, communities need to reflect. For example, I want to focus on the gender space. It calls for a reflection on how best to manage when we are faced by threats of pandemics, uh, threats of national-wide emergencies. Because what has happened in the past, for example, in the, in the region, you find that there have been Chief security operations, similar to what uh, was done nationally to address pandemics, to address COVID. The same has happened in some communities over time, but because it was very localized, the impact of that is not felt in the capitals. So, for example, when Lamu is locked down, when Garissa is locked down, the impact of locking schools, schools that have been locked for five years, hospitals that have lost uh, staff members because of insecurity, teachers who have fled in secure places because of insecurity. Because that is happening in the peripheries of the center, the impact had, had not been recognizable as it is right now. Right now, what COVID did, it brought to the fore the impact of security actions in peripheral communities now were brought to the center. So what that means is that now nationally, 
conversations are happening around how to support children who are out of school and who cannot go to school because of one reason or another that is security related. So now you'll see that the states are now hiring uh, experts who know how to deal with ICT to see if they can help manage online teaching for children who cannot go back to school because the, the neighborhoods are still not safe. Schools that had closed five years ago were not able to adjust that manner. This helps us now begin to look at, at a more bigger, brighter opportunity that helps us become more resilient to crisis, to conflicts that destabilize communities, and to the kind of support and um, to the kind of participation, the participation that, is that is needed and that you just mentioned. Would you have a story of a woman you met with your recent activity illustrating this? Uh, Hadija from Ijara, uh, from Ijara Women. Uh, she comes from a community where not much English is understood, not much of Kiswahili. The two national languages are not well understood languages in her particular community. And therefore, when the lockdown came in, uh, most of the communication uh, was done through the national languages. Even the, the presidential speeches, many people were not able to ad ad adopt that information. And what she did uh, is that she has been working on, on difficult conversations uh, relating to peace and security in the community. But what she did is that she identified an opportunity and went to the Ministry of Health in Garissa and partnered with health practitioners, including doctors. And they went to the communities, they went to the villages. Uh, even when we were all uh, asking people to stay locked in, she came back and told us, my people cannot, we cannot afford to lock ourselves in because our people do not have information. Our people do not have the tools. Our people do not have uh, information that is getting to the community. So she, very early on in April, uh, when everybody else was talking up and staying in the house, she went out to the community uh, with a few doctors and held several conversations, several conversations. And what she did is that she mixed health information, health-related information, and also mixed it together with peace building because it's a border community and the threat of recruitment or the threat of, of incursion or the threat of attacks uh, was also very high because when, when, when it went silent, there were also indicators that uh, uh, violent extremist networks were, were also organizing. So she went out. She went out into the community and she was able to provide us a model where we, we now are able to adopt what she did Uh, by walking into the communities, to the camps, uh, to, the, to the villages, to the remote areas where radios do not reach, uh, where te television networks are not available, where even phone networks are not available. And she held conversations uh, with those communities and still continues to do so uh, even today. Thank you, Judy, for sharing. So we can clearly see that in this region, the gender impact of COVID-19 is coming in addition to already major issues that communities have had to face for decades. Let's welcome now our first and last, but not least, gender expert for this episode, Rim El-Jabi in the Middle East and North Africa region, also called MENA. Even if the African continent has different conflict and challenge, it is interesting to see if we can see some similar outpack or differences in both regions. Welcome, Rim, and thank you for your time. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your background to start? Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Reem El-Jabi. I'm the gender advisor at Search for Common Ground for the MENA region. 
I've been working on gender and development-related issues since as long as 1994. And I attended a 10-weeks course on gender training for trainees at the University of East Anglia. I'm happy to say, I'm proud to say, I was among the first to attend such a course. It was still a new subject. And I was the first Syrian to actually attend such a course back then. We're glad to have you with us in order to bring your perspective on COVID-19 gender impacts in the Middle East and North of Africa. As we asked Judy... How did the pandemic play on the already existing gender challenges? What has really uh, impacted is that uh, women already have limitation in basic rights in the MENA region. Women already are suffering from gender inequalities in the MENA region in a number of things like uh, violence, abuse, access to services, um, etc. So this has really exasperated since the COVID-19. I mean, women already are burdened with a lot of tasks, such as caregiving tasks, such as lack of services. So they make up for the lack of services. There is an increase in the burden on women in the MENA region. And especially we should take into consideration that MENA region is a is place where there are a number of ongoing conflict, long-term conflicts that have been there for years and already. Women have suffered during the conflict, and now there is this increased crisis on top of the crisis that is already there. So we have, for example, the most vulnerable communities in the world, in the MENA regions, um, which are uh, namely the internally displaced persons, the IDBs and the refugees in the camp. And that's specifically in the North Syria, in Yemen, and in Iraq. And more than 70% of the people there are women and children. They're really suffering already before the pandemic. And now because of the pandemic, the suffering is increased. For example, there is shortage of food for uh, supplies. So we have, we have heard that there are pockets of starvation and malnutrition in the camps among women and children. Uh, the the first um, impact of the COVID-19 that came up or was spoken about was the increase in violence, and especially domestic violence. I mean, I know this, this has taken place all over the world, and I know we heard it all over the world. However, the thing is that in any way, we don't have much services or much let's say, uh, hotlines or shelters or any places for the women to go to when uh, domestic violence occurs. And that was uh, the case before the pandemic. And now with the pandemic, such uh, issues have increased. Women don't have as much access to communication, to the internet, as men do. So they cannot report. I mean, Again, we heard pockets of women reporting, and that uh, is a problem. Why? Because in some countries, the government said we don't have an increase in violence, as you said, because we don't have the reports. 
We, uh, we don't have anyone reporting on that. And the, the fact is there is under-reporting of the cases because women cannot reach the lines and cannot reach the services. So this is another problem is that we know because the cases that have come to the NGOs, they know that there is an increase in violence. However, it is not recorded because there's no real procedures to record it. Women in the MENA region are anyway, have the lowest rates of participation at work. And most of those who do participate are in the informal sector. So they have no social protections. They don't have any kind of insurance. And so with the pandemic and with the closing down, especially of small businesses and the informal business. So most of them found themselves really in a very vulnerable position where they had no protection and they were just at home without any means or support. But on the more positive side, we find that there is an increase in civil society participation in trying to really take up the space that is left over by the government, where the government cannot provide the services, could not cannot provide the procedures needed. So the civil societies are trying to fill in this space. And this is where more women are really getting involved in the civil societies. There is a trust on women's role to be in a leadership role in civil societies and in community participation. So this is um, on a more positive side that uh, more women, for example, are providing awareness raising, especially in terms of health awareness raising, in terms of food distribution, in terms of key messages, advocacy messages to grassroots women. So there is more trust on women's role in this pandemic. Okay, and maybe could you provide us more details on activities that you are currently conducting with SEARCH within the region? So at SEARCH for Common Ground, we are trying to also respond to the COVID-19 impact on women within the project that we are implementing in Yemen. We are trying to effectively enable and respond to the to a conflict-sensitive response to COVID-19 that is also gender-sensitive. It includes information management, dissemination of credible information, and most importantly, rumor management. I mean, we try to ensure that the right information is reaching the community, especially that we know that a large number of the women that we target are women who are unable to properly read and write. Usually they hear about uh, information by mouth. So we try to ensure that the right information uh, reaches them in a very simple way and a way that they could understand and respond to. Although we're not changing our projects, but we're mainstreaming the impact of the COVID-19 on the community that we are um, targeting in the uh, different projects. Well, you explained us before a positive slide. May you elaborate and share with us some 
concrete progress made regarding women's role in the region? There has been more uh, networking among women groups. They have been very active on the net. They couldn't travel to meet in personal, so they have really strongly used the internet and there has been, in fact, an increased number of meeting, an increased number of networking among women at the internet level. And they have pushed a lot of agendas forward. They have pushed the agenda of women's participation in peace building. For example, you have the Cairo International Center for Conflict Resolution, Peace Building and Peacekeeping, uh, in which uh, um, there were co- cooperation with different UN organizations, including UN women, to actually make women's voices heard in the conflict situation and to actually push forward women's participation in the political process. Things that have also strengthened, for example, in Tunisia, we know that Tunisia is working strongly on the violence against women issues. And there is a law, actually, a very progressive law that combats all kind of violence against women. And uh, due to the pandemic, the government has coordinated between the Ministry of Women Affairs, the Ministry of Interior and other uh, government agencies. They have come together to support a hotline for women who are subject to violence, uh, survivors of violence, and also to set up a shelter to uh, protect women. And also the most important part is a campaign, a campaign to raise awareness on the need to really end also sort of violence against women. Another example is the uh, female journalist in the MENA regions. They have been also very active in raising awareness messages that promote gender equality, that promote the protection of women and girls in the private and public sphere. Because, I mean, usually um, it's a taboo, still a taboo to speak about uh, violence, domestic violence in the private sphere. However, due to the increase in the number of violence against women, domestic violence, so there has been a lot of awareness raising on the need to protect protect women and girls, not just in the public sphere, but also in the private sphere. And starting from the context of the lockdown and then to move toward that all the time. Uh, There has been an increase in research also in data collection. In general, in the MENA region, we still lack periodic researches on women-related issues. Uh, For example, um, there was a study in Palestine uh, to understand women participation in the economy. From the study, we understood that most of, uh, um, like 70% of women-owned enterprises, especially small enterprises, have been forced to close down as a result of the COVID-19 compared to only, let's say, 40% of male-owned enterprises. So um, a lot of uh, researchers have come out to show the different gender dynamics and gender impact of the COVID-19 on men and women. And considering what you witness in the region, 
What are the potential opportunities and perspectives for women causes? So we're hoping that this pandemic really opens the eyes towards the role that women have played in responding to the pandemic. Not just the leadership role, but the building the trust, uh, building resilience. Also, community have become more uh, insured by women's role. We know that in terms of women's participation, especially political participation, especially in the MENA region, that is still limited. Women have been trying to push their participation forward to the front line to be part of the uh, peace negotiations, uh, conflict resolution, peace process uh, before, during and after um, the conflict. And yet all the time the male-dominated parties have tried to push them aside and marginalize them. And uh, while they have been marginalized, Uh, in the actual direct participation, they have actually been active in the side participation. They've been active on uh, at the community level. They have tried to make themselves at least presence at the grassroots women and men. For example, we know that uh, um, the Syrian Women Advisory Board, which are the main women speakers at the negotiation process and uh, for example the women for Yemen network which is a group of nine activists they are trying to push forward the United Nations Security Council resolution 1325 and the women peace and security agenda so they are being pushed back but during the pandemic they have been very active in calling for a ceasefire and saying that uh, this is no time for a, the conflict and for the fight between the opposing parties. This is a time to put this aside and work on a more um, serious crisis that we're facing, which is to fight the pandemic. And also, what I found very interesting is the fact that um, there, there is a woman group in Syria. They're trying to ensure that the women's right that they've won will stay, will not be lost due to the pandemic. There is fear because of the pandemic because of the lockdown and because of the fact that women have been restrained back to their uh, traditional role at, at home, especially those women who used to be used to work and now find themselves back home, there is a, a fear that they will lose their um, uh, the, the rights that they have gained, the rights to participate in public uh, that they have gained and that they will be restored back to their traditional roles. But I do like one thing that the UN Security General um, has mentioned, and this is a, a really good statement. He said, women should not just be the babysitter of the economy and society. Rather, they should be the, at the center of the effort to recover from the COVID. And this is uh, to say that we saw that they were the real heroes to fight against the pandemic. Um, uh, uh, and so they shouldn't just be the caregiver. They should be the babysitter. But this is a time to ensure, especially within the women peace and security agenda, to ensure that women should be really at the leadership role. They should be given more leadership role in the peace process all over the world. Not just the conflict, but all the conflict-related society issues that comes up. And another thing in the MENA region is that we, we have a lot of discriminatory 
articles in the law against women, especially in the personal status law. I mean, there are a lot of articles that really deem women as second-class citizens and give more rights to men uh, than women, especially in marriage, divorce, inheritance, uh, guardians, etc. And now it's the time to really reread or rephrase or revisit uh, amend these articles to give more women more law-based rights and um, social-based rights. So this is the time because women have really shown what they are capable of doing and how they were heroes during the fight against the COVID-19. And this is the time to really appreciate what they have been doing by giving them more rights socially and in terms of the law. Thank you so much, Rim, to bring us your knowledge on the local situation and moreover, give us perspective of hope, even if we allied during this episode adverse consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic on women's daily life and regarding their role integration into society. It is great to see that women are capable of taking actions for the sake of their communities and themselves. We should continue to monitor and identify the damages provoked by the pandemic and also concentrate on the opportunities that can be drawn from it to thrive and build resilience in conflictual settings. Of course, you can find in short notes of this episode all useful links, including the church website and the UN reports published in Apple. Thank you for listening to this episode of World's Books as Voice. We hope you like it. A special thanks to our interviewee and search for the time and presentation, as well as to our co-producer, Free Range Production. Let us know what you follow on social media, Twitter, at WiseBorksel, Facebook or LinkedIn. And stay tuned for future episodes.